the Bible. It's the Word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword. This sacred book is living and active and contains all that's needed for life and godliness. Stay with American Family Radio for the next hour as we study God's Word and take your Bible questions. Welcome to Exploring the Word. Thank you for listening to Exploring the Word. Alex and Bert here. It's our joy to come to you each Monday through Friday with Exploring the Word. And we're in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 17. So get ready to travel. I'm telling you, we find ourselves in a place called Thessalonica. Then Paul goes to Berea. And then Paul heads to Athens right here. And there are three significant places. Alex, when I look at Acts 17, you see Paul on the move. But in each place, he has a lasting impression because he's preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you say that? Well, absolutely. And, Bert, it's good to be with you and to welcome everybody to another week of Exploring the Word. We've said this a few times, and it's worth saying again, that Acts is such a book of action. And there's movement, there's geographical references. Of course, Acts 17 is very famous for part of the the latter half we'll get to. But I love in verse 5, it says that Paul and them, they set the city in an uproar. (laughs) Um, the, The gospel and those who preach it, they definitely have an impact, don't they? They really do. So he comes to Thessalonica, and there would be two letters that would come to this church later on. Matter of fact, 1 Thessalonians is one of the first, if not the first book that Paul wrote that we have in the New Testament. But notice the words in verse 2. I could not help but notice them in verse 2, Paul, as his custom. Now, what was his custom? To go to the synagogue. This is part, and I know I've repeated this word quite a few times uh, because I look at mission strategy. That's one of the things I always did as pastor uh, here at Exploring the Word and Exploring Missions. I investigate strategy as his custom. In other words, as he his part of his strategy, go to the synagogue. And what would he do there? He'd go on the Sabbath. And what would he do? Reason with them. Now, this word reason, Alex, is, is a unique word. It has the idea of debate and argue, but it has the idea of presenting to them a truth and then then letting them respond. And that's what Jesus would do. And then he would explain and demonstrate, verse 3, that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. That's mm. what he would do. That's that reason and trying to trying to uniquely share with them the message of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, you know, this is a very um, Arabic, Middle Eastern, Jewish thing, discourse. You know, Paul would reason with them from the synagogues. And, uh, you know, I I don't want to get us off topic, but some of the listeners that are into apologetics uh, knows that that discourse and dialogue is is very much a part of the Middle Eastern culture, Bert, and definitely part of the Greek culture, you know. And so this thing, you know, in Acts 17, we're going to get to um, Acts 17:22, where it says, uh, you know, Paul begins his dialogue and discourse with the people there on Mars Hill. But in Acts 9:22, it says that he was debating and dialoguing proving and alleging that Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. So, Bert, I think some of this um, present, explain, defend, 
present, explain, defend. We need to learn these <laughs> these rhetorical skills all over again. Amen. And especially as you and I knew uh, you would. I know from past, but also know just Alex McFarland how you would love the latter part of Acts 17 because he was in what I would say uh, foreign territory, going to the synagogue. That was his custom. That was what he did. That was his strategy. But And we're previewing ahead, but we'll come back to it. But when he look, goes to Athens and he sees all these pagan idols that they have there and he finally sees the one to the unknown God, again, he strategizes. He says, okay, this is my opening. Alex, yes. Paul was always, and I think you've already said that in a different way, he was always looking for an opening to share the good news of Jesus Christ, wasn't he? He was. Well, in verse 3, I mean, he definitely shares the gospel, which, remember, the gospel message needs to include the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the sins of the world. And we put our faith in Jesus and, and are forgiven. But verse 3, Paul uh, is there in uh, reasoning on the Sabbath days for three weeks. He says that Christ must needs have suffered, that's the death on the cross, and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. So verse 4, there's a big impact, a lot of response to the gospel. But verse 5, But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them, and Bert, I've always loved how the King James renders <laughs> I do this. too, yeah. Uh, certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city in an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. In other words, they got some thugs. They, they, and I guess every city has, uh, you know, the bad side of town, but they said, look, we need you to help us run these guys out of town, and maybe bring them out and beat them up, but they couldn't find them. They drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city, crying that these have turned the world upside down and are come here also. Well, you know, uh, Billy Graham, I've shared this quote, but in Billy Graham's early ministry, and he was, you know, filling up stadiums around the world, and he preached the, the timeless gospel that you must be born again. And some liberals back in the 50s said, hey, you've set the church back 50 years. Billy Graham said, well, I was hoping to set it back 2,000 years. Amen. And uh, us too, that, that original message that is evergreen and timeless, that Christ died and rose again, and if you put your faith in him, you can be born again. Looking at verse 4 just for a minute more, notice the people, a great multitude of devout Greeks. Now, now where yeah. was he preaching? He was preaching in the synagogue. This is not street preaching that he's doing here. He'd do that in Athens. But here, these, and I again, I know I'm repeating myself several times, but it needs to be. These are God-fearers, Gentiles. They knew that there was one God. They knew that uh, he was the one, the creator. And when they heard Paul tell about Jesus Christ being that one, they were drawn to him. And so that is the whole idea. Alex, you know our son Nathan, mine and Jan's son Nathan, was ministering oh, yes. there with uh, a lot of Muslim people in the Atlanta, Georgia area. 
and how many of those that were even, uh, there were Muslims, but some were very diehard, but most of them were just, they were they were only Muslims in the area that, okay, they were raised in it, but they had not sort of given cultural. them rights for cultural reasons. But they would have dreams. And then when Nathan and others would tell them about Jesus, they'd say, oh, this is the one that we have dreamed about. And God is preparing them. Here, these God-fearers, these devout Greeks, these leading women, they were there. They had known there was a God. And when Paul and Silas comes to town, and they tell them that this God is the Messiah. Notice it says in verse 3, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Messiah, is the Christ. Yes. Is, he's the anointed one. He's the one that the Old Testament, and you've been looking for, he's the one. And when they found that, Alex, they joined right in. And yes. they were a ready-made audience. And I, I believe there's people out there today that God is working in their hearts, working in their lives, and we just need to present Jesus Christ to them, and many will come to him. I believe that with all my heart. God's preparing them. We just know, I, I'm going to use this word, we need to go and close it. We close yeah, that deal. Exactly. We need to you know, share Christ, and people will follow. I do believe that. They did it then. I think it'll happen now even. Uh, say not three months, and, and then the harvest. The fields are white under harvest even right now. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Back in uh, Acts 14, there were Greeks at Iconium that believed, and here in Acts 17 as well. But there are always opponents to the gospel. But uh, it says that uh, Jason has—here's the accusation against Jason. Jason has received these people, verse 7, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, that is, Jesus. And they trouble the people and the rulers of the city— when they heard these things, and when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. Um, meaning, I don't know if they forcibly stole some of his money or whatever. They took security of Jason, or maybe Jason had to post some kind of bail, yep. you know. But uh, verse 9, and by the way, isn't it sad? And let me just say this. Lord knows we are not anti-Semitic. I mean, Bert and I both have been to the Holy Land. We love the Jewish people. Um, and Genesis 12 says that it, God will bless those who bless Abraham. We love the Jewish people. Amen. But, but let's be clear that the, the religious hierarchy, the Jews, turned Jesus over to be crucified. And they said, we have no king but Caesar. And it, Bert, it makes my heart heavy here that again— they're opposing the gospel, these people that have rejected their Messiah, Jesus, who came to them, and they try to trump up charges to get Paul and Silas and the believers silenced, and they appeal. They play this card in verse 7 of Acts 17 that, look, you know, we're faithful you know, followers of Rome, and we're loyal to Caesar, and understand these men preaching Jesus— they're treasonous against Caesar. I, I mean, and let me tell you this. They didn't care any more about Rome and Caesar than anything uh, because Rome was an occupying presence in Jerusalem. But yet, when it served their malicious purposes, they would talk a, a big game about their loyalty to Rome. You got it right, Alex. And the word in, received in verse 7 
has the idea of welcoming. I mean, it was he wasn't just hiding him. He welcomed him, and that's the idea. That is the Greek word, welcoming him, received him openly, uh, not, you know, wasn't forced. But real quickly, verse 10, and we'll introduce this, have the break and come back. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea when they arrived and they went to the synagogue of the Jews. Here they were, these men, after Baal was posted, whether it was taken or given, we don't know for sure, but when that happened, they gave they gave them the opportunity to get Paul and, and Silas and say, you guys go on to the next town. That was 43 miles away, Alex. They would leave Thessalonica and go to Berea, and guess what they would do? Go to the same place that got them into trouble the first time. Mm. <laughs> go to the synagogues. Hey, we'll That's be commitment. back. Yeah, it is. We'll be back with more here in Acts 17 right after this break. Don't go away. My hope is found. He is my life, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. Welcome back to Exploring the Word. Alex and Burr, so honored that you're listening. And the number, I'm going to give the number, even though uh, it'll be a few moments before we get to telephone calls, but take this number down if you would. It's 888-589-8840. That's 888-589-8840. And we'll begin answering Bible questions here in just a few moments. But we're in Acts 17 right now. And Bert, I've always, you know, I was talking about how the language of this book uh, is very interesting I've always loved the, the language of verse 11, too, yep. but uh, in verse 10 it says, And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night in, unto Berea, so they have to slip out under cover of darkness, who, coming there, went into the synagogue of the Jews, just as always. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. Well, the the noble people there at Berea, uh, that's very inspiring, isn't it? It really is. They were fair-minded. They wanted to hear, and they received the word. That is the same word that is used in verse 7 about Jason receiving. It's, it's translated a little different. Same word. They received him. They welcomed the word. And how did they do it? With readiness. And then what did they do? They searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Alex, man, I love those Berean. Uh, this is my third favorite church uh, that we talk about in the New Testament. My first one is Antioch. I love Antioch. I love the church at Philippi, but I love these beloveds, these brethren and, and lovers of Christ here in Berea. They well, received the word, but they searched the scriptures daily, said, okay, we hear you. We're not going to yeah. debate it. We're going to see and follow through. And guess what? Since Paul preached the Scriptures, when they searched the Scriptures, they found it was true, brother. They Well, and let me just say this, and I want to talk about how this might relate to us. So I looked up the word nobility. Uh, it says these people in Berea were more noble. Now, nobility, it could mean, a, you know, higher, uh, more, you know, higher cultural standing. You know, like in Europe, the, the kings and princes are called the nobility. But it, the word used there in the 
the verse 11, really means of higher moral character. Now, here's the thing. It doesn't take money to live morally. You know, I, I've met wealthy people that were very immoral, and I've met people of, of no means that were, had a lot of integrity. But here's what made these people noble. They were willing to be honest and give the message an honest hearing. You know, and it says they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. Verse 12, therefore, many of them believed also of honorable women, which were Greeks and of men, not a few. You know, back there in um, Thessalonica of the of the noble women, the chief women, not a few. And here of the men, not a few. So people are responding. But Bert, let me just say to everybody listening, um, are you of such character that you've opened your heart to God, you know? These these noble people in Berea that would believe, it wasn't that they had money, it wasn't that they had a position, but they were of their heart and soul and mind, they were sufficiently noble that they would honestly give the gospel a hearing. And um, it's like G.K. Chesterton said many times, uh, a century ago. He said, it's not that the gospel has been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. <laughs> Bert, we need to open our heart and, realize, and humbly admit that Jesus is real and we need him. Amen. And these Berean, they, they established, they believe it. They opened the word, so they were already discipling themselves. Now, because they already had the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came in their lives at the moment of salvation, and here they have, they're searching the Scriptures daily. And when you have the Holy Spirit guiding you, I'm not saying preachers don't help. Hope Alex and I help those that are listening to get into the Word more. Sure. But the greatest teacher in the world is the is the Holy Spirit. Opening Amen. the Word. They opened the Word, and, and that's what they did. But when the G, verse 13, but... When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. That was 43 mm. miles away. We don't know exactly how long, but it didn't take them long. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away. They Paul had already had a near-death experience. We don't know his full recovery. He, he was well enough to keep on trucking and keep on going, but yet they didn't want it to happen again. And he went to the sea. Both Silas and Timothy remained there, but Paul went ahead. And so those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens. That's about 143 miles away. It was a, They got way out of town. Since Thessalonica and Berea was so close, they didn't want those from Thessalonica to find them in the third place. So they went all the way to Athens, receiving mm -hmm. a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed. They departed. So when he got there, he sent back word. Again, we're not talking about a cell phone call. <laughs> we're not talking about even a telegraph. Uh, we're talking about, okay, i got to send this letter. got to send a person there to tell them, and they had to go and come. So he's, we leave him in Athens, but Paul, uh, Silas and Timothy are still in. Uh, they're still in Berea. Now, Alex, I figure uh, they kind of kept undercover for a while, but during that period of time, they were able to help disciple those believers a little further. So here we have Berea growing in the Lord, Thessalonica believers growing in the Lord. So Paul is leaving them in good place. And if you go back, 
all the way to Luke 16. Uh, I mean, Acts 16, we find out Luke was also left uh, there in Philippi so that they could go on. So Paul, now notice part of his strategy, he would go to a new place, go to the synagogue, if it, if there was a synagogue, preach right. Christ, take those out, help them to grow in the Lord. But many times, even after he left, others would stay behind to help those grow in the Lord. So he was not just interested in, quote, converts. He was interested in disciples following Christ, wasn't he? He really was. And, you know, this is laying such a foundation for the spread of the gospel. Bert, I was, I was reading, and as best we know, Paul and, and hundreds of daily interactions with people only the Lord knows, but we, we have record that Paul preached in 28 major cities. And, you know, I think about this, in spite of the persecution, in spite of the uproar and the threats of, of, you know, legal repercussions and beatings, and, you know, Paul has quite a resume of his sufferings, but this is laying down just an incredible foundation for the spread of the gospel, a foundation that would stand for the next 20-plus centuries, and here we are to build on that foundation, aren't we? We really are. And so here we find in the middle, and we're getting, I, I'm just going to say that we're getting to Alex McFarland's territory in verse 16. Uh, and and yeah. I say, you know what I mean by that? This is Alex. Uh, notice what it says. And I, I just hear this. Now, while Paul waited for them, who? Timothy and Silas at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers. Again, these are the God-fearers. And in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Now, he's added something here, Alex. He reasoned in the synagogue. But look at the latter part of verse 17. In the marketplace. Mm, okay. Yeah. He's kind of stretching out a little bit here for uh, Paul for a minute here. I I'm not saying well, he hadn't done true. it before. But notice Luke takes special note of that, doesn't he? Well, he really does. And he's in the marketplace, verse 18, Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, What will this babbler say? And some, he seems to be setting forth strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof you speak is. Well, apparently, you know, they love just discourse. Bert, I had somebody say this to me one time at a college, said, you know, it's not the journey, it's not the destination, it's the journey. Well, now, what they mean by that is, um, it's nice to talk about truth as long as you don't say you've arrived at truth, you know? And these Epicureans that like to indulge themselves and maybe, maybe fulfillment, eat, drink, and be merry, and yeah. be you know, very hedonistic. And then the Stoics know maybe, um, and th this is very much like, really like Buddhism, self-denial is the answer. Yeah. Uh, be very uh, asceticism and, and deny yourself. Well, no, Paul talks about sin and a Savior. And they some say, what is this babbler going to say? And But they like to go, look at verse 20, they bring certain strange things to our ears. And we would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else, either to tell or to hear some new thing. But verse 21 
is so much like a lot of people today, ever learning but never coming to the knowledge of the truth, as Paul would say in Romans. Um, Let me say, folks, it isn't just the, the journey. It is most certainly the destination, and we hope that destination will be that you put your faith and your absolute full belief in Jesus Christ. That's that's the journey that the Amen. heart is never satisfied till it reaches. Amen, Alex. The journey to that destination. That is a great journey when that destination is Christ. And that journey to him and following him is, uh, again, I'm going to use the song, is a great adventure. And uh, we launch out to it. Now, verse 22, then Paul, and don't dismiss the word then, because Paul takes the opportunity he doesn't back away. He does. He knows who his crowd is. He knows these are the people that they argue, they debate, they want to know. But he he does it. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, "Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're very religious. For as I was passing through, I considered the objects of your worship. I even found an altar with this inscription." to the unknown God. Now, they had all those mm. other gods. If they missed one, they this unknown God is not to uh, recognizing God as heaven. They were fearful that they had missed a God. And they mm. said, well, we want to make sure we cover all of our bases so we get one to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Alex, he says, you can know him. And what does mm. he say? Let me introduce this, and I'll turn it over to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives all life, breath, and all things. Now, again, verse 26 goes in a different way, but he introduces, this is the introduction to a pagan group of people. In the synagogue, he did it differently. But in the streets of Athens, he presents a different method of doing it. I don't think it was out of line. I've heard some people say, well, you know, Paul, you know, went back. I don't think he did. I think he recognized a different audience, Alex. Oh, exactly. Well, he's in in this polytheistic city. Polytheism means many gods. He's going to set forth one God, one human race, and one human need for Jesus Christ. Now, you know, he's burdened. And by the way, it's interesting um, because it says there was this altar to the unknown God. And it's interesting that the word unknown is the word agnostic. Now, it doesn't mean that God is agnostic because God is omniscient. He knows all things. But literally, it means the God that you are agnostic about. You don't know him and you might not think he can be known. Bert, let me just say, I've talked to a lot of people, and they'll say, um, you can't know if God is real. Well, no, you can, and he's shown us the way. And I've said to people, I've said, well, I've explained Jesus and the resurrection. Would you uh, believe in him? People will say, uh, well, n- I just don't know. Well, no, you had truth, and you rejected it. So agnosticism is is a cop-out, because people are basically saying, I, I'm sure that you can't be sure. I know that you don't know. At any rate, 
This is not just gobbledygook or a word game. This is trying to help people, with the help of the Holy Spirit, help people think about the status of their soul. Now, Paul says in verse 23, I'm going to declare this God to you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither worshiped with men's hands as if he needed anything, seeing he gives life and breath to all. You know, God doesn't need us. Uh, He's one that we depend on. And he is made of one blood, all nations of men. Now, Bert, Acts 17, 26, that right there is, is one of many proofs that the Bible is God's word. People didn't know this at that time, that, look, there, there's one race, the human race. There's one blood, and the life is in the blood. And there, there are different ethnicities. And like Abe Hamilton says, there's just different amounts of melanin in the skin or lack of melanin. But verse 26, Bert, one blood, all nations, but one human race, that in itself is a truth people at that time wouldn't have known. And let me say this, as we're coming close to the end here, it notice he starts a creation. He does. He goes to the creation of the world. He goes to the creation of man, as you said, one blood, every nation to dwell on the face of the earth. He has determined their times and their places. Man, this is a big God that he's sharing them with, and he is a real God, and he said you can know him. Hey, we're going to take phone calls, 888-589-8840. We would love to hear your Bible question today. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to Exploring the Word. Matter of fact, let me just tell you, we got some lines that are open. If you've been wanting to call, it'd be a great time. That number, 888-589-8840. We got a couple of people that's gotten through, but we've got room for more. And Alex and I, we'd love to hear your Bible question today. And so, Alex, you ready? I am ready. That number, folks, 888-589-8840. Tell us your Bible question. We'll do our best to give you a good answer. Okay, let's go to Arkansas. Okay. Well, Alpha, my, welcome. My, my. Yeah, go ahead. Thank you so much. Bless y'all. I try to listen to y'all every day, but today a station, another station is butting in, and I don't know why that is unless it's the wind or something, but I was wanting to ask Alec McFarland something, a question, please. Okay, sure. We're g- glad to have okay. you. Okay, I was I was wanting to know about the, where the unknown tongues is found. I know y'all are on the 17th chapter, and you're on 26. About you're talking about the blood. I heard Alex say that about the blood. All nations of men, while they dwell on the blood, a face of the earth. I was wanting to know about uh, the unknown tongues, where it's found. Can uh, in 1 Corinthians 14, it talks about if someone, and Bert, I believe this is talking about a worship service, that if somebody speaks in an unknown tongue, then somebody else is going to interpret it. Um, and then in verse 28 of 1 Corinthians 14, it says that if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in in church. And 
Bert, I, I know there are a lot of stories of the mission field, and, uh, you know, even when I was at the Cove, you know, a week and a half ago, the Billy Graham Training Center, during a very intense altar call, somebody spoke in a tongue and somebody else gave an interpretation. And, um, you know, the MC at the Cove thanked God publicly for how present the Spirit was. And, I, Bert, I realize that's for a lot of people, they've maybe never experienced something like that in church, but. If you go to the foreign mission field, I think it's more present than here in America. But regardless, it was certainly present in the early church, wasn't it? It really was. Now, in the book of Acts, you'll find it occurring three places where they spoke in other languages. Yes. It, it's not referred to as an unknown tongue. It's referred to really as a language. Yes. But in the church at Corinth, it was different, and you had an interpreter there. And so that's where it is, Alpha. And... Uh, but it, it honestly says when you're seeking gifts, seek those gifts that that really the the superior gifts is the way it says it in the yeah. Greek. So if God gives you that gift, praise God. But hospitality, the gift of, of encouragement, uh, those gifts are very, very viable and important and they might not be as out there as another, but how important they are. These are the gifts of the Spirit of God. Thank you, Alpha. Let's go to Mississippi and talk to Spencer. Welcome, Spencer. Hey, guys. How you doing? Doing great today. Good, good to hear from you. Good, good. I, well, I had a question. Um, well, you know, most of my life I've, you know, I've been told and I've heard that we were created in the image of God. Well, I know God created Adam and Eve, and that being the case, it would seem as though Adam and Eve was created blameless, sinless, if it was created in the image of God. Then in Genesis 5, chapter 3, it says Adam and Eve had the son Seth, and Seth was in Adam's likeness in his image. Then if you think about it, would we basically kind of be born in the image of Adam, being born into sin, since we're all born sinners, and to be created in the image of God, we have to accept Christ as our Savior to be reborn, therefore being made blameless in God's sight, being created by Him again? Am I wrong in thinking that? Spencer, thank you for your good thinking. Mm -hmm. I, I want to say, Adam and Eve, yes, in the image of God, now, listen, to be that complete image, I, I believe every human being is made in the image of God, but it's been marred by sin. And yes, and you could say, well, they're in the image of Adam, and that is true. So so I don't, I'm not trying to take an easy way out, Alex, but I believe I understand what Spencer's saying, and there's some truth in it. But we are made in the image of God that has been marred by sin, mm -hmm. and I think you can say that. Now, that does mean that we're made and created in, in, in the image of God, that we can know him for sure, doesn't it? Well, yeah, and you know Isaiah uh, 53 talks about the Messiah, and it says his visage was marred. Now, it's funny, you know, Second Corinthians 5.21 says of Jesus, he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. Jesus' perfect visage 
was marred so that our marred visage could be restored. Amen. Bert, is that fair to say? That is awesome, Alex. That that is so true, and uh, that that is right. We come back into that body, soul, and spirit. Our spirits. Uh, we must be born again. Uh, we yes. we're physical. We have a soul, soulish. You know, we have that. But that spirit must be born. That's what he's saying. You must be. Another term for that born again is born from above, which have yes. the idea of spiritual uh, spiritual birth. And that's what Jesus was telling Nicodemus. Spencer, and I, that's, that's an A-plus uh, question. That's an A-plus question. And, you know, the Bible also uses the word regeneration. Yep. Uh, being made alive, that which was dead being made alive, and we've passed from death into life, and Ephesians 2.1 talks about by believing in Jesus, we are regenerated. Um, Bert, you might have heard the old term, unregenerate sinners. Yep. It means somebody who's not yet born again by having put their faith in Jesus. It is. Thank you, Spencer, again. Thank you for that, that uh, timely and thoughtful question. Let's go to Texas and talk to Steve. Welcome, Steve. Thank you. You have a I, question? I was yeah. Of, yeah, I'll sort of introduce my topic as I'm an adult Sunday school teacher, and we've been studying the uh, Samuel's, Samuel's farewell sermon and the beginning of Saul's reign. And we're gonna uh, this coming Sunday, we're going to study about the Lord rejecting Saul. I, I know there are many reasons, but what would you consider... A, a verse reference to the main reason that the Lord rejected Saul. Okay, great question, Steve. I, I would, Alex, admit, you mind me saying uh, no, what I, I go for? It. When yeah. you look at Saul and what he was, he was serving God again with half a heart. Uh, he he wanted to hold his hand to God and also hold his hand to the world. He he was much. Uh, you know, disqualified because of what he did. I understand what he did in acting like a prophet when God says, wait on Samuel to get here, and he did not. Uh, he just wouldn't trust God completely, Alex, you know, yeah. that, that he was trying to, what does the Bible say? He can't serve two masters. I think yeah. Saul proves that. Well, 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23, uh, Samuel says this, here's the, here's, the large part of the answer, and everything else flowed out of this. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And by the way, Bert, and I, I know you'll concur, one of my absolute favorite figures in the Old Testament is Samuel. Uh, but Saul was selective. Uh, Samuel said, you're not doing what you're doing for the Lord or in obedience to the Lord. And Saul told Samuel, no, everything I've done is for the Lord. That wasn't true, was it? And so the word of the Lord, the commands of the Lord, but here's another problem, and I'll throw it back to you, Bert. He, he didn't hold himself to a standard. That, and I've met a lot of people like this, and boy, they will, they will make everybody else toe the line, but they themselves don't really live it. And that duplicity of character that we might talk it, but we don't walk it, um, God can't use that, can he? He cannot, and that's exactly what Saul was doing. He he determined. Uh, he 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 determined. This is where I go, and I'm going to please me. And I think he was trying to use God rather than God using him. Okay, mm. 
And uh, I, I, so that's a really good question. It is. They man, we're doing great today. With that in mind, let's go to Arkansas. And is it Tony? Yes, Tony. Yes, yes. thank uh, you, Tony. Dallas. Yes, hey, thank uh, you. Hey, I, 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 I want to throw this out there real quick so you can give me a lot of information on it. But a friend of mine that is my neighbor. We uh, had a discussion on uh, talking about God and marriage, and uh, you know he didn't feel like that God created marriage or belief or whatever. And so I, I wanted to um, see if y'all could capitalize on that. And I'm going to hang up and I want to record it. And if y'all address it to him, his name is Justin. And uh, I just want to know if y'all address him and uh, give him some information on the radio here. And I'm going to record it on my phone so I can pass it along to him. But I showed him some things and he still just, it, we're not arguing about it, but we're having a debate, you know? <laughs> so, okay, Tony. Thank you. Start recording. Make sure Listen, the book of Genesis shares with it. Let me give you this, and I'm going to give you something I think is significant. God is the one that brought Eve to Adam. God's the one that did that and told him to take him, her and him, her to take him. And, and that's the whole idea. God established that. And in the New Testament, Jesus said it was that way from the beginning, was didn't he, Alex? Yeah, in Genesis uh, 2.18, I mean, God is the initiator of marriage for a lot of reasons, uh, because of our need for companionship, and God said it's not good for man to be alone. But also, marriage is a picture of the gospel. Um, By the way, marriage is a trinity. There's husband, wife, and God. Then there's mother, father, and children. And so, Bert, I really believe one of the reasons that Satan has so vehemently attacked marriage and family is because, as the brilliant Francis Schaeffer said 50 years ago, marriage was designed to prepare our hearts for the gospel. Now, I do want to say this, though, because Genesis is the oldest record we have of human history. If God didn't initiate marriage, then pray tell who did, (laughs) because for all of recorded human history, all of history, um, there's been a man and a woman husband, wife, and children, and it, it goes back to the very Garden of Eden. Now, I'm going to say this, and I know we've got to move on. I would, I would assume anyone who you know, wants to argue that God didn't invent marriage, maybe they're thinking that way because there's the implication that marriage, therefore, is fluid, and we can uh, reinvent. Maybe gay marriage is uh, equal to heterosexual monogamy. Um, that that's false. That that doesn't work at all. I mean, you could try to argue against marriage, but I, I'm going to say this: every homosexual couple, every deviant relationship, has to borrow from traditional marriage. Because look, if you look at lesbian women or gay men, there's always one woman more effeminate and one woman more masculine. It's almost like the lesbian or gay relationships are a counterfeit of heterosexuality. Now, one last thing, and I'll, I'll hush. If, if a gay couple wants children, they are dependent on a heterosexual pairing to get a child. No heterosexual couple needs anything from the gay world, but the gay world must co-opt heterosexual, i.e. traditional marriage, to have children. So by God's revelation, historical precedent, and by design and the fruit produced, clearly 
the only viable and in fact i would say the only morally right structure of marriage is a man and a woman and that is affirmed by jesus christ himself it yeah. was affirmed by him it's affirmed by the apostle paul all through the scriptures one man one woman and that is what god's desire thank you and i hope that helps tony and i pray that your friend would see that in a, in such the manner that the word of god is true when it comes to marriage let's go to kansas welcome lee yes i was wondering how you would answer a question that claims to be for abortion what? okay lee we'll try mm-hmm. to we hadn't got a lot of time alex you go first this time uh well uh, there's no no possible way to legitimize that i mean if you claim to be a christian and claim to be for abortion uh i would like paul say examine yourselves and see if you be in the faith because uh, now i, I want to say this born-again christians can frequently advocate for whether it be gay marriage prayer in schools or transgenderism for children but either they're just uninformed or in willful disobedience because if a christian is taught on what god's word says um you you really have no choice but to obey what the word of god says otherwise there's luke 6 46 where jesus says why do you call me lord lord and don't do the things i say bird i just and i know i'm being maybe i'm not being rigid i'm just trying to be right you cannot be a born-again christian and knowingly be for abortion um i, I just i agree they, the it, two can't go it it is un they do not come together they do not mix Abortion is taking the life that God has given, and it is not convenient. It's still life. If it's not wanted, it is still, that child is life. That child is real, and uh, life begins in the womb. So we hope that helps, and thank you for your call. We couldn't get to Tim, Marilyn, Judy, or Jane, but we've got all week, man. We're going to take questions at the end of each each program so we'll try to get to all these questions we appreciate them now if you're reading ahead go to the end of chapter 17 of the book of acts read on into the book of chapter 18 and you're going to study about the city of corinth alex paul sure is going through those cities quickly isn't he laying a foundation for the gospel that lasts to this day so let's stand for the gospel in our times as well may god bless you and thank you for listening The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.